Welcome to Respond to Resilience. On this special episode, we'll be discussing the toxic 1975 New York telephone company fire, which many consider to be the second most deadly and costly in the history of the New York City Fire Department, second only to 9-11. Our guests are retired FDNY firefighter and cancer awareness advocate Dan Noonan, who was first due on three truck as Irons Man, and Deputy Assistant Chief Frank Lieb, Chief of the FDNY Academy. We'll be documenting the historic fire, talking about lessons learned and discussing transferable points to reduce occupational exposure and looking at the plaque dedication ceremony, which honors the sacrifices made by the responders who were at that monumental New York Telephone Company fire. We invite you to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Respond to Resilience. We're on Facebook, Respond to Wellness, Inc., also on bbsradio.com, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Our website with all past episodes and show information is respondertv.com. We'll be right back to speak with Dan Noonan and Chief Lieb after this. In this family, more of us die by our own hands than by the hazards of the job. In this family, up to a quarter of 911 dispatchers have symptoms of PTSD. In this family, our mental health and wellness are in crisis while responders are quietly suffering. In this family, many struggle with job-related stress, burnout, trauma, sleep disruption, substance abuse, and marriage problems. In this family, we can help the helpers with vital information and resources, resilient strategies, and success stories of overcoming the obstacles. In this family, no one is alone. Welcome to Respond to Resilience with co-hosts retired Lieutenant David Dashinger, Dr. Stacy Raymond, and Bonnie Lumley, LCSW EMTB. And on this special episode, as we welcome Chief Lieb and Dan Noonan, let's just uh, give you a little bit of background about this monumental fire. At approximately 12.15 a.m. on February 27th, 1975, the fire broke out in the basement cable vault at the New York Telephone Company building, 13th Street, 2nd Avenue in Manhattan. The incident escalated to five alarms with 699 firefighters responding and toxins from burning cables and other materials exposed them to polyvinyl chloride, hydrogen chloride, vinyl chloride monomer and chlorinated dioxins. The smoke from the scene traveled all the way to Queens and the next day, even several blocks away on the FDR, drivers had to put on their headlights just to navigate the road. Dan Noonan was first due on three truck to this deadly fire. In the decades since, he's been a tireless advocate for awareness of occupational cancer and toxic exposure in the fire service, and in particular, regarding the cancers and deaths sustained by many of the 699 FDNY members who fought this fire. He's a featured speaker at FDIC, Firehouse World, and Firehouse Expo, and he's the awareness ambassador for New York Cancer Resource Alliance, and they have a first responder program called Get Checked Now. Dan's also a campaigner for FACES, that's Firefighters Against Cancer and Exposures. And to honor the sacrifices made by these firefighters, Chief Frank Lieb has overseen FDNY's plan to host a special ceremony courtesy of the Firebell Club and to install commemorative plaques at the Telephone Company building and at the FDNY Fire Academy. Frank Lieb's a Deputy Assistant Chief in the Fire Department of New York, and he's the Acting Chief of Training. He's been a member of FDNY since 1992 and holds a bachelor's degree in fire service administration 
and a master's in security studies. Welcome, Chief Lieb and Dan. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate having us. Our pleasure. Uh, we'd just like to thank the Office of Image Archaeology for the use of their historic footage. Please check out their YouTube channel for an amazing collection of vintage films and photos. And uh, let's dive into this conversation, which no doubt is going to be fascinating. Bonnie, why don't you kick it off? Yeah. So, Dan, for those of our viewers who are not familiar with the 1975 New York Telephone Building fire, can you briefly describe what happened there and what was your role as one of the first two firefighters on scene? Uh, yeah, sure, uh, Bonnie. But uh, before we get into fire department operations, I'd like to briefly describe the building. The building, as uh, Dave mentioned, was on 2nd Avenue and 13th Street. And you got to remember, this is at a time prior to satellite communications. This is a main switching center. This is 11 stories. It was built to be earthquake-proof. It handles tens of thousands of phone calls every hour. And it serves a 300-square-block area of Manhattan. And that includes some of the world's largest housing projects. It includes three universities like NYU. And it includes all the precincts in uh, downtown Manhattan, all the FDNY stations in, uh, in our first division. And it is just an enormous place. Uh, in the 70s, they decided to upgrade the facility and make it riot-proof with all the demonstrations and protests going on. So what they did on the windows is they, they took the glass, they put wire through the glass, they put it in reinforced steel, steel frames, and then they took this Lexon. Lexon, which is a bulletproof plastic. You, it's impossible to get through. They covered all their windows with this, and then they mounted it in heavy metal cages. And this was the entire first and second floor. And this building occupies the whole corner and runs for a couple hundred yards down the block. This place is unbelievable. So the alarm comes in slightly after midnight, and uh, I had to watch. And, um, of course, I wasn't watching SportsCenter or anything like that. I was uh, studying the department's rules and regulations. <laughs> but when the alarm came in, it was all static and all scratchy. It was very difficult to understand. But what I did understand was a lot of Company 3 report, uh, working structural fire, 2nd Avenue and East 13th Street. We go by a box system, box Manhattan Box 465. So we turned out the company. We had a very veteran lieutenant. This guy worked in home for many, many years and uh, – Type of guy he had a pipe, you know. I mean, it was you couldn't rattle uh, this guy. So we pulled up to the building, and it was all confusion. Apparently, all day long in that building, strange things were happening. The clocks had stopped. The lights in the phone booth were starting to blink. Uh, a certain alarm would sound, and the foreman would shut it down. So all through the uh, building, there's 23 employees different card games going, different floors. Now they all start to get odors of smoke. They pick up the phone to call it in. The lines are dead. 
now the smoke gets heavier. Now the alarms start to sound. They start congregating downstairs in the lobby, and they go to the security guard. And he picks up his phone, silent. There's no outbound here. So he screams to one of the workers, for the love of God, we got a serious fire. Pull the fire alarm box. So we pulled the box, and uh, 11.0026 on that morning was when operations began. Love to hear a little bit about, um, now that you set the stage with the fire, what were your duties and what did you actually encounter as first do? As first do, when we rolled up, I was part of our forcible entry team. And our forcible entry team is tasked with always life, right? We're all about life, number one. And secondly, we have to identify the seat of the fire. So we go in and there's confusion. And one of the supervisors, uh, phone company supervisors, bring us over to this display panel. And the thing is, boom, 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 boom. And Battalion 6 arrives. They come in. And the display panel is indicating a fire in the sub-cellar vaults, which are like three stories on the ground. So the chief, we look at one another. We got to go. There's two employees missing at this time. So other truck companies are assigned to ventilation and also to look for these fellas. And our task is, down you go, fellas. So I was with the lieutenant, and I had the irons, another firefighter on the uh, two-and-a-half-gallon extinguisher and pipe pole, known as the can. We started going down and down and down. And the further down we got, the, the, the hallways were long and tired, like a high school or whatever, but they had the fluorescent lights on the top of the hallway, but the smoke was starting to gather at the top of the lights, so it had a real dim, dim glow to it. And at the same time, the fire alarms, like klaxons, were going off, like a submarine. And, uh, 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 it was like, whoa. We kept calling. One employee was there. He says, it's down here. Take off. And we approached this 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 steel door, and it has danger high voltage on it. And the lieutenant looks at me and goes, maybe not a good idea to bring in the Halligan. And in the process of all this, five engine, who was returning from a false alarm, was already in front of the building when we got there. And they were in the process of hooking up. And they're stretching their attack line. They're behind us. We can hear them. We can hear the transmissions. They're behind us. But we got to find it. So we open up the door, and down we go, a short set of maybe there's three little staircases. We're down several feet, and now we're in zero visibility. Zero. can see nothing, hmm. nothing. I mean, I only have two years on the job now, but I'm like, whoa, I carried a light and everything. I'm saying, son of a bitch, doesn't work. You know, I'm like, until I put it right on my face piece, I, I couldn't distinguish it. And so there's a, a lot of chaos. We can't see anything. We're now in a confined space. There are no, no secondary means of egress. Our only way in is our way out. So now five is taking the line behind us down these staircases so we're like 
big wall of smoke. And now the polyethylene that was on the cables is starting to melt. And it's melting on the floor. So our boots are starting to adhere to it. So we're sticking to the floor as we go. In our offices, to make a transmission, we'd have to remove their face piece, and they're making transmissions. And I'm saying, good God, they must be taking a hell of a beating with each transmission, right? So we couldn't identify anything. Five is now has the line. It's ready to hit whatever. We see nothing. Mm-hmm. One guy goes, there's a flash. Dude, there's a flash. There's a flash. It was very chaotic down there. And so now the lieutenant says, you know, let's back out. Let's back out. So we start to retrace ourselves back up, and we're following the line. But the line had now moved off the staircase and is now traveling vertically up the wall. Like, oh, one firefighter from five engine was able to grab on to the railing of the, of the staircase, reach over and to the line, says, I got it, I got it, here, here. All muffled, everything's muffled. And we were able to, through him as a human bridge, to identify the staircase. And now we're going back up. But as we're going back up, firefighters from 33 engine and 14 engine are set to back us up. They're sent down to back us up. Now we're becoming entangled in the staircase on top of one another. Now the alarm bells start to go on the SCBA, right? It's identifying, yo, we got four minutes, four minutes. But there's so many alarm bells ringing, you can't identify whether it's yours or the firefighter next to you or behind you or in front. You would have to remove your glove and physically feel, feel the, uh, the vibrations of the alarm. So it's a mess down there, but everybody's back out, back out, back out. And very fortuitously, the lieutenant from Rescue Company 1 is now on scene. This thing was transmitting very quickly. Additional engine, additional truck, transmit the second. Boom, this thing is really starting to rock. So he took the uh, roof rope and laid it, tied it off from the lobby, and laid it down these staircases all the way down these hallways. Now the smoke is banked all the way down now. So we able to follow this, this roof rope as a lifeline indicating our passageway back to the lobby. Uh-huh. Yep. Several of the brothers couldn't make it. Air is gone. Other guys taking their face pieces off, plucking it on their brothers back and forth, and then collectively just like a football scrum pylon when we hit the lobby. We've never seen anything like it. There is a photograph out there of like 10 guys piled on top of one another, and nobody looks good. I mean, everybody is we, – we, we never had smoke – well, two years on the job, I can never say, but everybody never tasted – anything like this ever, ever. Hmm. So here we are out in the street, et cetera, et cetera, as the alarms start to multiply. We'll, we'll come back to 
what happened next. Um, Chief, let's jump forward in time. And how did you first hear about this fire? So most people in the FDNY are aware of this fire, right? I mean, just here, I've heard Dan say this story so many times. Uh, and it's just, I can't say enough about Dan and the, and the folks that operated that fire. Um, I mean, he even mentioned the his light, right, which he had on. He thought it wasn't working, mm-hmm. but the, the, the toxic smoke was so thick that it looked like it wasn't on. And they're in there. They're, they're, they're fighting a, a valiant effort. Um, so I'd always known about it. I'm a student of the... I'm a student of the fire service. I read something fire related every day. Um, and so I had known an awful lot about it. I read the book um, uh, in the mouth of the dragon written by Deborah Wallace. And when I read that book, it gave me a whole nother account of, of this fire from the failure to adequately protect firefighters. Really. I mean, this was a precursor to, uh, modern contents, what's burning, how it's affecting firefighters today. Uh, we certainly the it was the model that uh, that we thought of when we were building the the uh, and Dan can speak uh, more about this when the nine eleven firefighters and how we how we track them to not to not fail in that in that account. But it wasn't until I heard Dan talking about it that I realized that there was there was no formal mechanism of honoring those firefighters. There was, you know, he mentioned there was no, there was no plaque. Um, and just as the, I, I was the chief of the fire Academy when, so I heard him talking on, on another podcast on the uh, getting salty podcast where he mentioned that there was no formal plaque. So I'm friends with the two guys that run that podcast. And I texted him and I said, I need, I need Danny Noonan's phone number. And I called Danny the next day. And I'll never forget what he told me when he uh, when I told him what I wanted to do. And he said, I've been waiting decades for this phone call. And Dan has been an incredible ambassador for firefighter cancer, for early detection. He's an incredible ambassador as a member of the FDNY. Um, And his his persistence on this topic and the fact that, you know, he's been, he was talking about this for so long and that it took that podcast for me to know that, that there was no formal recognition. And at the time I was the chief of the fire Academy and I was able to say, Hey, we could make a, a wall, a training wall that, and, and we'll do a, um, a documentary with you that will have part of that. And, We'll make sure that every firefighter, current and future firefighter in New York City, knows the story of this fire and knows the importance of making sure that you use your protective equipment and best protect yourself. And like I said, Dan's been a champion that for champion of that for a very long time, and he deserves so many accolades for bringing this to to everybody's attention and certainly to my attention. Again, as a student at a fire service, that I didn't recognize. I'm like, everybody knows about the New York telephone fire and they do. But the fact that those responders don't have recognition for that, I think was just a severe oversight on a department's, uh, on a department's part. And the fact that uh, my superiors were all very supportive of doing it. And we're excited to finally uh, see this later this month. 
Great. Yeah, we'll we'll come back to um, talk about that more. What what you guys are doing to honor um, that commemorate the firefighters and the the fire itself. Uh, go ahead, Bonnie. Just to understand some of the impact, Dan, um, how were these firefighters affected by the exposures as time went on? What were the health problems and the fatalities that you saw as a result of? Uh, well, uh, that night and the following days, um, firefighters who went unconscious were rushed to Bellevue. And as I said, we, we all this was quite new to us. And out of the 699 that were on scene, 239 of us, what we call tapped out, we went sick. We went sick right there in the street. And this is in an era in the mid-70s in our so-called our war years where going sick was literally frowned upon. It was, oh, you didn't go sick, you're a man, you stayed, you know. And if you went sick, your lieutenant had a, you know, all of this. So to have that many guys and 239 was wrong. We should have had 500 firefighters go sick at this. We had firefighters lying in the street, leaning up against buildings. They had evacuated the building twice and then went back in for a third time. And then, you know, in the days and weeks that followed, it was like, oh man, what's up? The flu was something. It was, it was terrible. It was like the, or the stench that was in our bodies. I had one, um, a wife of Lieutenant Rescue One call and tell me, I, I knew it was terrible. I knew it was terrible. Jim scrubbed himself for days and days, shower after shower, and it still was on his flesh. It never left. And that's the way it was among all of us, all of us. And then, and then Bonnie, you know, uh, we were all sick for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then, regrettably, shortly thereafter, we all got laid off. It was the mid-70s, and they laid off. They began with 1,800 of us and then uh, pared it down to 900 of us. So, and, and then guys started to get sick, really sick. Young, healthy men. The guy I was with on that night in three truck, he's on the football team. He's a big, buff, athletic guy, you know. He's, what What kind of cancer does he have? What? This is crazy. Then also, oh, you're about the guy in 14 engine? You see the cancer he developed? You're about the guy in seven truck? You know, the guy who's the boxer? He's got interstitial fibrosis. The guy who runs three to five miles a day, he can't run for the bus. All these things are coming in. They're all flowing into kitchen tables. The essence of our job, the kitchen table. And from that kitchen table, we start knocking on doors. There's no answer. Knocking, pounding. Then the city hall. City hall. Nothing. We're in the process of laying off firefighters, not medically monitoring them. So what we what they did in, in lieu of medical monitoring, we all got a stamp on our folder a stamp of a red star. And it wasn't long before the folks at Bureau of Health Services and the light-duty folks who were assigned there began referring to this as the red star of death. Because who had one? It's like every time, who has cancer, who died? Boom. You got to remember, in the years from the phone fire to 9-11, 
three out of every four throat cancers on the FDNY is from the foam fire. So all of this, I can go on, you know, Chief Lieb says recognition and everything, appreciates what I, it's not about me. It's about these families, about these families who lost their loved ones 10 years after that job and 46 years old. All these crazy cancers filled us. And they were like, be on your way. Oh, here's your funeral. We have a couple of guys from the company come. You know, it's it's the families that deserve this and the children who grew up without dad for so many years. Or if I could tell you some of the emails I got from these, from even grandchildren, I'm named after my father, my grandfather. I never got a chance to meet him. He was at the phone company and knew he died as a result of this. It's it's families, and we want to take what we've learned and pass this on to our brothers and sisters so this will never, ever happen to them again. And we're delighted that they used what the model of failure for us and applied it to the 9-11 responders and today's active firefighters. Well, take what we went through and through folks like Chief Lieb and others who, who identify the necessity of personal protective equipment and what we need to do. Yes, the message has got to be passed. I mean, that's powerful, Dan. Um, thank you for sharing that. Uh, Chief, how does how does this translate into modern uh Firefighting at FDNY, the culture, the procedures, policy. Um, how have you uh, taken the lessons from this fire and, and put them into action? Yeah, so you know, there's so many, there's so many transferable points to today's firefighter. Um, after a fire today, um, you shower and you still smell the fire, and sometimes, you know, several showers later. So that's you off gassing. Um, which isn't good, right? So the absorption of chemicals. So making sure that members after a fire that they shower, making sure that they're using all of their personal protective equipment, that we're cleaning it um, as frequently as we need to. All those things are all lessons that, you know, uh, that we're fortunate to have somebody like Dan, who's a champion for it and making sure that we educate our, uh, our new firefighters because, you know, that was an unusual building unusual in the, in the fact of the, that it had all those dangerous um, all those da- dangerous materials that were burning but today everything is made of plastics and that type of mm-hmm. stuff I mean that the, the phone company building you can find that that building exists in almost every city every large city in America has a building that's that's, that's similar and um, but the the fact is the, the next private dwelling fire you go to, um, is going to have a lot of chemicals in it that are very similar to, to what was burning in 1975. But now that it's, it's everywhere, the plastics and what's, what's being, uh, uh, everything's plastics, everything's lightweight, everything is uh, uh, it's creating this toxic soup that firefighters are in. And we need to make sure that we're best protecting ourselves, making sure you're getting annual medicals, that every exposure you get, you got to make sure you're, you're, taking, you're taking care of yourself. And I think those are very transferable lessons to today's firefighter. I have to say, just listening to both of you speak about this, uh, and especially Dan recounting everything, it just, you exude the passion of this topic 
And I think for anybody who listens, they won't forget the things that you've said. Um, and Frank, I think that what you're doing is so commendable because you're making sure that it's never forgotten. You're making sure that this doesn't happen again to people. And along those lines, I wanted to ask you about a remembrance bulletin. Can you talk to us about what that is? Yeah. So uh, in the FDNY, um, when we say we never forget, um, we, we back that up, right? We back that up with action. Um, and one of the latest uh, products that we been working on for the past year, uh, myself and my team led by Battalion Chief John Davies, um, we, we came up with these remembrance documents. And what they do is they look at all of the line of duty deaths in the FDNY, and we look at what lessons uh, from the past are still relevant today. So we have firefighters that were killed in a loft building um, in the early 1900s, you know, in lower Manhattan. We still have plenty of loft buildings. And the way they died in those fires are very relevant uh, today to firefighters. So we want to make sure that we remember our fallen members by honoring them and the lessons that they provide us. Simply put, the fire service repeats too many lessons. Um, and we repeat them by losing firefighters, whether it's in New York or another city anywhere else. Um, and we want to make sure that however a firefighter dies, that, that, that we honor that and make sure that that information is, is passed along in actionable intelligence from, from that line of duty death. Now, um, and it's not to uh, minimize some of the line of duty deaths that we've had, but, you know, a member that um, uh, that got kicked by a horse isn't, you know, there's, there's not a transferable lesson to today's firefighting. So we, we created about 100 of them. And what's unique, there's only a couple of those remembrance bulletins that um, are not an official line of duty death. And that's one of them is the February 27th one that we put out to honor the telephone fire. There's no official firefighter deaths related to that incident, but yet we covered in our remembrance bulletin because we know that the lessons that that fire provide are timeless and very relevant to today's fire. And we also know we, we likely lost more than a hundred firefighters to, uh, to occupational cancer and from that fire. And the other important point is the New York telephone fire was, was one fire, one, one exposure. Um, and we know that you can get cancer from one fire or one exposure. Hmm. We also know that um, that chronic exposure over a career also increases your risk. So we have to make sure that we're doing all that we can and that's the, the, the genesis behind the Remembrance Bulletin is making sure that these lessons are never forgotten. Thanks, Chief. Um, and thank you, Bonnie, for the sound effects. <laughs> uh, always on cue. <laughs> always on cue. <laughs> so, Dan, um, there's so much to your story and, and beyond. And um, I want to make sure we cover some of the uh, what's happened since parts uh, in, in terms of, you know, your uh being the ambassador for uh, exposure awareness, toxic exposure awareness, and forgetting check now. Can you talk a little bit about that and, you know, what's kept you passionate and in the game to keep spreading the word and being that ambassador? Uh, well, um, I, I guess uh, to be frank with you, I was, I could have been junior man there at the uh, telephone fire. 
And as time went on, as the decades go past, or when the phone started to ring, uh, Danny, guess who died? You know, and inevitably it's a brother from the phone fire. So I said, you know, there's a certain obligation that we have in the fire service. You know, if you're dedicated into the fire service, there's a certain obligation. And I felt uh, an obligation that I have to take what all this misery, all this cancer-ridden just misery that we went through literally by the hundreds to recognize that and identify it for our future generations of our brothers and sisters so they can extrapolate what we went through and say, whoa, whoa, all right, dude, time to, you know, time for them to buckle up, time to maximize what they got to do, and also time to get checked. Early detection, I mean, I was I was petitioning City Hall to uh, back in the 80s and 90s to at least do a, a survey of the 699 of us and find out who has what, who has what, who has what, and then seeing, oh, we're seeing a remarkable high, high incidence of throat cancer. Send a letter out to all, all the hundreds of us and go, hi, by the way, we're finding, we urge you to go to your physician and oncologist or whomever and get checked, especially for throat cancer. We're seeing significance in throat cancer because, as we know, Dave and Bonnie, as you guys advocate, early detection is the cure, is the key, is the key to survival. Get it early. And this is why I wanted, but unfortunately, City Hall was indifferent to it. Indifferent. Very nice. (laughs) Well, Dan, uh, the way that you have advocated, it it just shows such resilience. And a lot of what we talk about in our show is mental health and resilience. And I think that you've relied on your own inner strength to get through this and to help others. Do you think that's an accurate portrayal of what you've Um, done? No, because you left out Guinness. (laughs) (laughs) that's in the next episode right oh okay (laughs) Uh, yeah it just you know it's it's also the support of one another you know it's it's the this wonderful fraternity that we have and it's not only here in the fdny it's tri-state area it's all over the country it's california it's texas it's indianapolis you, you go everywhere and we have it. But I feel there's a certain obligation that the FDNY, in my opinion, is the tip of the arrow. Just based on fire duty alone. Uh, I mean, it was always perplexing to me how, how a department that, say, in Arizona, that does a thousand fire runs a year can dictate tactics and strategies to the rest of the country, whereas there's a department, the FDNY, that does 100,000 fire runs a year. We should be taking that information and spreading it nationwide, if not North America, if, if not global, to take all lessons learned and apply it across the, uh, across the world nowadays. Mm-hmm. 
So this is this has been a mission, you know. Started started in New York, but I'd like to, with your help to blow it up and Chief Lieb and everyone else. Yes. Well, we will do our best I with that, Dan. I think Dan, you're hundred percent right. So um the FDMY on the back of our coat means so much more. Uh there's an obligation to that uh that extends um for many of us outside of the FDMY to educate uh firefighters and speak out on issues and um whether you're retired or whether you're uh, a current member, uh yeah. be worthy, right? And Dan certainly has. The FDNY last year responded to just under seven working fires per day. Um no one no one comes close to those numbers. And those are serious structural fires. That's not even counting all the, the minor instances that we typically don't even count as an exposure. Food on a stove, car fire, dumpster fire, and the, and the like. So, um, yeah, we, we do have an obligation. And it's a, it is in, it's in the firefighter DNA. Uh, we're just wired that way. And when we're able to help firefighters uh, uh, outside of New York City, I think it just um, – it really force multiplies the message. And, uh, you know, Dan's been doing that for a very long time. I unloaded 32 years of emotion. This job isn't a joke, and it can hurt you. How does yoga or meditation help with that? Coming to terms with who you are. You know, nobody calls us because they're having a good day. It's really the suicide that becomes a huge issue. People are more trustworthy with the dog. Sleep deprivation helps them either be better or worse. Completely secretive when we started this. So it's pretty much taboo. Take care of the people next to you first responders really be open about what they're struggling with if we know that let's raise awareness brings you together to talk about it and it tells you you're not alone if you guys don't mind i have one short paragraph here okay one one, one short paragraph uh this is from former chief of department john hart He stated pre-9-11, quote, as it relates to injuries, duration, and damage, it was the worst fire in the department's modern history. He added, if we had to fight the telephone fire today, we would go about it much more cautiously. And if it was demonstrated that the smoke was hazardous to the firefighters, I would hold them out of the building. It's profound. So, and for decades, for everybody, it's, you know, I, I went to, uh, and all of us, you know, Bonnie spoke about mental health before. When, when all of your colleagues all around you are all like, guess who has cancer? Guess who has cancer liver? Guess who has throat cancer? Guess who, guess who died? When that's all around you, and you're there, and you're one of the first in the subcellars, you start thinking, whoa, whoa, what's come from me? I personally went into this, I, I, I read these articles, I saw a watch by this Dr. Linus Pauling, who's a noted uh, oncologist and thing. He says, you take massive doses of vitamin E, it wards off cancer. I was taking this by the handful. I didn't care where I was, if I was... <clears throat> Partying in the Hamptons for three days. I always took it because I know it's coming. Something's coming. Something. All of us lived under the sword of Democles. The sword of Democles. 
it's above you. And for those of us with little children and families and uh, stress it's, factor. Yeah, very yeah. stressful. Well, and I imagine having to live with that all the time. You're living in fear. Yes. You were all living in fear. It's, it's, it was too many not to, you got to recognize it. It's, we, we all identified that this is around the corner and, mm-hmm. and it's coming. You know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a matter of, you know, Chief Lee, but Dave, maybe they're, they're so used to structure or their DNA is certain where it's going to be 10 to 15 years. For me, it'd be 21 years. For, for somebody, it'd be six years or whatever. I, I don't know, but you know, it's in us. It's inside of us, you know, and we gotta get this message to the active folks now. That yo, dude, I, I sent you two photographs, Dave. One is myself on the job or whatever. I think it's in thirty-one truck or whatever, you know, yeah. great. Oh, and the other was me in front of Sloan Kettering. And what I wanted to do to your active viewers is to say, all right, this is great rock and roll time. Make the flight. Yeah, whoa, this. And the other one is, how do you want to spend your post-job years? Do you want to be playing with the grandchildren? Do you want to be be at the tiki bar? Do you want to go to the racetrack? you want to do this? you want to enjoy a vibrant post-department life? Or... Do you want to spend it at Sloan Kettering every other day? This is the choice that needs to be made now. Now, brothers and sisters, it is now. Amen, Dan. Thank you. Chief, I had an, a question for you. So if one of your firefighters was listening to this now and they said, gosh, I, I want to get checked, they come to you tomorrow, what does that look like? Where do they actually get checked, and what is the advice you can give them today as a result of all this? Yeah, so that's a good question. We have annual medicals, um, and anybody who's gone for more than a year and, and for, for whatever reason and they want to get a, fit, uh, a medical earlier, they can, they can do that. Uh, so we have a pretty robust system set up in, in New York City. But, you know, it's Dan's points are, are so are so accurate to transfer them to today's firefighters is that, you know, your future self will thank you. I just three months ago, I, be, I became a grandpa for the first time. I know I look young to be a grandpa, but um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, the actions you take when you're young, your future self will thank you because the years, you know, the months, days and years that you're taking off your life are off of those times when you uh, the retirement years. Right. That is supposed to be the best the best times of your life and you want to get to be able to, you work hard your whole life. You want to be able to get to those years and, um, and, and enjoy them. So for the firefighter, I think it's, you know, be smart, aggressive on the fire ground. Um, I worked in all busy firehouses. I've been, I've been very fortunate and I would still work in all those places, but I would be just as aggressive cleaning up and doing the things and wearing my equipment um, as I was, as I was fighting the fire. And I think it's, you know, and the early detection get checked, you're your best advocate. You know what right feels like. There's a, a group out there. We educated all of our firefighters um, on uh, detect together, and it's a three-step detect. It's it's pretty simple stuff. 
um, to, to just be aware of, of what right feels like and how you could best protect yourself. So much of this is an awareness for a young firefighter. You're not invincible. Um, and quite frankly, I have lost too many firefighters and too many friends. I'm tired of losing my friends to cancer and we have to do more. Hey. And, you know, today's firefighters that were getting cancer at a younger age uh, and the survivable uh, rate of that has for firefighters hasn't been hasn't been as good as it should be. And some of us because of the lack of early detection. Thanks, Chief. Um, Thank I want to make sure we cover this because it's a very important part of what we're talking about. And that's, you know, what you've done to recognize or commemorate the uh, firefighters who responded to this fire and also um, you know, what you're doing at the academy in terms of uh, the Dan Noonan uh, gallery. And tell us a little bit about what's coming up, what you're going to be doing and how that's uh, what that's going to look like. Uh, hold on. I don't want to. Uh, <laughs> I was unaware until before you mentioned uh, when they <laughs> asked me to spell my middle name. I said, uh, you got to get the spelling right. Uh, yeah, Dan, Dan knows that we're doing there. Um, so we ordered two plaques, one plaque for the wall and one plaque for the building. Um, we've gotten the approval for them uh, to get ribbons, uh, typically uniform ribbons. That's the other thing that they've been uh, advocating for. And the FDNY leadership, both current and and previous, because we've it's it's um, uh, it's jumped. It's been in the middle of two administrations, and both administrations have been a hundred percent on board uh, with all of this. And it's going to be a training wall. It's going to be the uh, New York Telephone uh, Fire Training Memorial uh, Wall, and it's going to have several pictures. One of them will be a picture of uh, of a young Dan, and um, and. and you know, we, we recently did a um, an interview with Dan, and we weren't sure how we wanted to do it, um, whether we wanted to have a bunch of people sitting around the table asking questions, or we just put the mic on Dan and let him go. And we decided that, well, Dan said it's not about him, but he has been the vocal spokesperson. He's the identifiable person representing the 699 firefighters and, importantly, representing their families, as he pointed out as well. Um, so... We put a microphone on him and we we recorded him in the in our library, the manned library, and it is exceptional. And um, so I will provide you with a um, a link to that once we have it done. And that that ceremony, we're really looking forward to it. Typically, we do these type of ceremonies on the anniversary, but being that it was February, colder months in New York, it was difficult for some of the people who wanted to come to 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 be here. Mm. And so at Dan's urging, we're doing that in um, in the warmer month in uh, in may uh, so that way we can make sure that whoever wants to be here uh, will be here we're also um it will be streamed live as well on the fire department's um on the fire department's web page and or facebook page or the youtube page uh any any of the social media links it'll be streamed live as well being part of the commemoration event at the fire academy this past week was truly an honor to finally see a plaque on the New York Telephone building on 2nd Avenue about what happened in 1975, and to have Dan and all the firefighters finally receive the long-deserved appreciation after 47 years is such an important historical achievement. Thank you very much. Dan, uh, one more question for you. And uh, 
I think you've uh, you've been informed about this, so it's, I'm not letting the, any any <laughs> secrets out here. But uh, what are your thoughts on receiving the Robert Barr Distinguished I, Advocacy uh, Leadership Award at The Rock? Uh, Dr. Langetz uh, asked me for the spelling. And I'm like, well, <laughs> what, what is this about? And I've been holding it down because I'm uh, – I'm, uh, I, uh, I, I, I want these remarkable women to share this award with me. These remarkable women who raise families after the early, early passing of their husbands or their loved ones. They're the ones who, uh, who should stand beside me on this or me stand behind them. It's more appropriate. Dan's delivery of his 47-year-old message at the commemoration ceremony was so vivid that he brought us all right there in 1975 at the subcellar vaults and zero visibility of black smoke and almost no oxygen supply. Over the years, I took great interest in this fire and read many testimonials and news features about how it all happened. Collectively, there are so many lessons to be learned from the current and future generations of first responders. You're a tough act to follow, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> it's an impossible are. act to follow. That's why yeah. I'm like, do I really want to go on a show with Dan Noonan? Dan, Dan We're even do this by himself. It, Chief, it took us months to figure out who we could bring on with Dan. That would be a, the perfect uh, counterpart. Wow. So you've you've been perfect, and uh, yeah, just um, you know, I'd love to just touch on the Mouth of the Dragon book one more time because yeah. um, it really should be required reading. Uh, I would say by any firefighters coming into the job, it's. Uh, extremely well written and it's kind of a case study of several fires um, in different decades that involve toxic um, exposure chief can you talk a little bit about why that book is so important yeah and, and it's an impossible book to get so hmm. several years ago when i first when i first heard about that book uh, i was at a fdny five chiefs association meeting i want to say it's 2013 and they brought deborah wallace the author into the meeting to talk about it and she's talking about these fires in ways that I had never heard them spoken about. You know, I'm, a, I'm aware of the MGM fire, the Stouffer's Inn fire, the, all the fires that are in this book. I had been aware of all of them. I just never looked at them from the toxicological standpoint and how hazardous they were to us um, from that standpoint. And I'm sitting in there and I ordered the book. I ordered it for like $10 because it's out of print. Um, and, and I ordered it. Now you, you can't find it anymore, unfortunately. Like I said, it's out of it's out of print. Um and there I, might be a couple of copies I, on Amazon if, if you're lucky. There are, but but every time they go cheap, I buy them. So I've been artificially inflating <laughs> them because I've I've purchased um, at least six copies, and I give them away. I give them to people and just say read it and please pass it on to to another firefighter because that book was very impactful to me. Um, and I think it is something that we need to be aware of this. Your gear is not a protective envelope that's impenetrable. There are going to be toxins that are going to penetrate your gear. First and foremost, as soon as you can, doff your gear, put your gear into a you know recovery bag or get it cleaned or put it in another compartment, whatever that is. When you get back to the station, make sure that you shower and put on clean clothing, right? So please do everything you can to protect yourself and get your gear off, get it stowed, and get yourself showered. Here's the fact of the matter. In the in the fire service today, um, we will lose we will lose more firefighters um, to cancer this year alone than than we've lost in the past five years wow. on the fire ground. Um, it is in a, it's an incredible threat to our profession, and we must do all we can. And 
to have someone like Dan who's been talking about this, you know, as long as he has, is is exceptional. Um, and the Mount of the Dragon talks about all of the fires that they have in that book. Talk about them from not from stretching the first hose line, but they talk about it from the epidemiological and the toxicological standpoint. And I learned so much. And again, I'm very into the fire service. I read, like I mentioned earlier, I'm always reading. I'm a student of my profession. And to have learned so much from that single book about fires in an, in something I just, I was blown away, but I learned what I learned. And I've been advocating and teaching. I speak every, almost every day that uh, one, one of us at the fire academy talks to our education folks every day. And cancer is always part of that message because um, – I love the firefighters that, that I work with and that work in the FDNY. They're amazing. They're amazing people. And we must do all we can to educate them and protect them to the hazards they face. And this is a, this is a huge threat to, to our profession. Chief Lieb has a fantastic article in our department magazine. It's called WNYF. And I think the, uh, the essence of that is, it's predictable, therefore preventable. Am I right, Chief, quoting you there? Yes, you're right. Predictable is preventable. I mean, if you, if, you know, thyroid cancer, for example, is a, a very prevalent cancer um, uh, in the fire service, not only in the FDNY. So, it, you know, your thyroid sits here and here. This is where your thyroid is. And if you're wearing a dirty hood, protective hood, well, it's the gift that keeps on giving. It's going to continue to expose the wearer every time you put that on. So some of it is just our members understanding some of the tactical nuances. They're aggressive on the fire scene. And then after the fire, they're tired. And, you know, they just, for whatever reason, they start loading the hose and they don't have gloves on or they're, you know, they take their turnout coat on and they're, they walk in a dirty hose, putting it on their shoulder. They're not even realizing what they're doing. And they get an exposure after the fire is out. That's not the time to be getting an exposure. Sometimes we're going to have an exposure on the fire ground. Right, firefighting is a dirty job, but we could do such a better job on minimizing that just by the educational component and making sure that our firefighters are taking the simple, often no cost steps. Because cancer, the treatment, and everything, as as Dan mentioned earlier, uh, is down the road is something you certainly don't want to go through. I have to say, uh, it's such an honor to meet both of you. Really, it's very, very commendable what you've both done. And I really want to thank you for sharing your time with us today. It means a lot to us. Yeah, I second that. Both of you are uh, really doing important work. And uh, we are so thankful to be able to share your message with our audience and, um, and keep this keep this really important topic at the forefront. Mm -hmm. I'm appreciative of the opportunity to come on and especially to come on with uh you know, with such a champion of, of the cause and Dan. So uh, thank you for the opportunity to all of you. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. Well, Dan, Chief, again, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And I just want to remind everyone uh, that we'll have some links in the uh, show notes for the, uh, the videos that we talked about earlier. Uh, we want to remind everybody to like and subscribe on YouTube, Respond to Resilience channel, Facebook, Respond to Wellness Inc. We're on bbsradio.com. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and we're on RespondertV.com as well. So thanks for watching. Until the next time, stay safe. Be kind to yourself. Take All care. Right. Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.